Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, Champagne Sharks, we got with us a returning guest, Jason England. I'll let him introduce himself. Hey, uh, Jason England, uh, I'm a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, New York City born, uh, Times Square in the 80s in Harlem raised, and uh, now live in Pittsburgh. I write essays, uh, I, I write fiction, and uh, I survive. And that, <laughs> that's my life. And every once in a while, I drink Japanese whiskey to celebrate the end of the semester. Cheers. Cheers. Even though I'm drinking water, but I'll just imagine I'm drinking something better. But yeah, we were uh, talking on the phone the other day, and the conversation was interesting. And I was like, this would make an interesting episode. Because uh, we were talking about, and it was funny, you had the same metaphor i had of it of things being like a bubble now but it's like a conglomeration of bubbles it's like the inception of bubbles there's bubbles within bubbles propping up bubbles it's like a a ponzi scheme or a pyramid i forget what it is where it's like multi-level marketing there's so many mix and match overlapping scam structures going on right now in a lot of industries and a lot of corporations whether it's crypto whether it's entertainment and publishing where there's a stock market and it's all kind of intertwined it's a lot it's a lot at once i'm not even sure how to even unravel uh it enough to do a starting point but i think the starting point we had was the whole publishing houses signing all these people off of strong twitter followings and think pieces to like these eight seven eight figure deals and we were trying to figure out how None of these people end up delivering the numbers. Like their Twitter followers don't become actual eyeballs that watch the show. They don't become people who buy the books or whatever. But these people keep getting signed for huge amounts. And we were just trying to figure out, like, when does it pop? How can they just keep affording to lose money? What is the game? And we had some interesting ideas and theories. You had some interesting inside knowledge yourself. Sure. Sure. Where do you want to start? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I guess one. I guess one place we can start is. I think at the time we had specific examples. Can you can you remember any of the ones we were talking about? There was. I, I know there were signings. Okay, one example was Britt Bennett got I think a seven figure deal, and the bidding war mm-hmm. was like seventeen places, and it ended up at HBO Max. Uh, that woman, Professor Crunk, uh, Brittany Cooper, got mm-hmm. some kind of children books deal. And it's like something like, I think like 14 children's books and all these people were bidding for it at the Scholastic. A lot of children, a lot of children's books deals. That's that. There's a lot of money in children's books. Yeah. So like when memoir was hot, memoir was extremely hot at one point, hotter than fiction. Now children's books seem to have replaced that as, as the place they've located um, where you can make a shit ton of money these days. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, somebody explained to me uh, why that might be. They said that children's books have a lot of institutional buying. So 
it ends up in school libraries. It ends up sure. in regular libraries. Uh, and they have these school library associations that are full of like the kind of women who are, you know, are in anti-racism anti-racism yeah. book clubs and listen to NPR yeah. and whatever. So book clubs is a big thing. Yep. Yeah, you got to figure out what your built-in markets are. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. from what I understand, if you can sell or license like your book to like one of these things, one cop, each copy, I think counts as a certain number of sales because they figure out that it's getting lent out several times. So they kind of, so I think for each copy they give a library, I've heard different figures, but it might count buying multiples of the book. So I feel like a lot of these deals revolve around trying to hide the fact that there's not a lot of on the ground popular support or audience for this stuff and trying to kind of game, game existing systems. You ever read that New York Times, um, deep dive on Cheetos, probably about five to seven years ago. No, it sounds interesting. Um, it was in the sense that, um, you know, what it really exposed was it, 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 there's a huge chasm between how we view something like Cheetos um, and what it actually is, right? So if, if you think about snack food, you're just like, you know, and let me not make assumptions about your audience or about you, but I'll tell you what I'm like. It's just like, hey, people made some snack foods. The public likes some better than the others, you know? Um and the New York Times was like, hey, Cheetos is the ultimate snack food. And it's the ultimate snack food, not because they lucked out, but because they spent somewhere between, and I don't remember the figure, but let's say conservatively 10 million and maybe even 50 million on R&D, on research and development. You know, these are well-paid scientists putting together the perfect chip that gives you the perfect mouthfeel in terms of the texture um, it, that deceives you into high caloric intake while your brain is tricked into thinking that's not what's happening, so you can eat an entire bag, a giant bag, right? Um, it's got the perfect level of salt, this, that, blah, blah, blah. By the time they break it down, it's almost like they've manufactured crack. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I know the article now. It was a review of a book called Salt, Sugar, Fat, and about the food science and how they mm -hmm. figure out how, it, how to make it as addictive as cocaine. And, and, and this is my point. Uh, my point isn't about Cheetos. It's that... Anything that you think is a trend, <laughs> that you think people are just lucking out or that they happen to hit the market at the right time and they're sharp, these are, in literature, right place, right time kind of mascots. There is an entire industry with science and research and the ability to manipulate markets and anticipate them and understand the intricacies of them behind them. So even this whole thing we talk about, which, which I, you know, I'm sure we'll get to at some point, this recent um, column that echoes these sentiments that we keep seeing over the past four, five years of the Black Renaissance. Oh, yeah. The Black Renaissance is not about Black art. It's not about um, some reimagining of Black identity or reality or social change. Uh, it's about agents and publicists, the bulk of whom are not Black, understanding the social consciousness, manipulating it, and, and putting forth a product that will make them money. Now, there will be some Black people who are paid off that, residually, of course. But the bulk of that money is, of course, going to the people who paid for the R&D, for the Cheetos. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. So, so it's, it's, yeah, they found, they, they figured this market out. Uh, they figured out which way the wind was blowing. And there are a whole bunch of Negroes you never heard of with no real uh, background in writing and no particular uh, integrity or interest in children's books who are suddenly writing children's books because that is a space that makes these agents and publicists money and these publishing houses money. I think also, too, 
uh, I got a feeling a lot of them probably think, oh, YA, children's books. It's easy. I don't have to do a good job. I think a lot of these people, their, aspir- their aspirations to climb and to make as, as uh, big a splash as possible, it doesn't lend itself to really good craft. And I don't even know if these people are capable of good craft. They actually very well might be. But even if you have the talent, if you're just churning out stuff as fast as you can just to kind of spam the market, talent or not, it's not going to come out good. And even if you do have the talent, you're going to, it's like a blade. It's going to get dull. If you don't keep it sharp, like I knew this girl, she was kind of playing the influencer game. She was very honest with me about it. She, uh, she quit it all because she said it was not good for her mental health, but she was kind of playing the game and was very social media savvy and always tweeting and working in media, doing these fast hit articles about trendy topics and think pieces. And she was like, the idea always was I was going to get a name for myself. I was going to get a following on social media, shit posting and, you know, make make connections and whatever. And then the name I was going to get was going to enable me to do more serious reporting or write a book or a memoir later. And then she kind of realized after a while, she's like, you know what? I've not written anything real in so long. I don't have faith that I can actually do real writing anymore. And if I even did get this uh, opportunity, what I would produce would be um, shit because I have not been honing my craft, you know? So I think it's kind of another problem with this way of doing stuff is that I think um, the content's not going to be good because it's your talent's going to atrophy if you ever even had it to begin with. And that sure. that's, that's why I think the children's book starts appealing to them because it's like they see it as a way they can do both. I can help keep my name out there and spam product, but I'm just going to um, phone it in. And the truth is, good children's books can be as hard to produce or have as much craft as anything as anything else, you know? Good children's books, uh, a, a good children's book, a good children's book is brilliant because um, it's replicating adult insights into a language that's accessible to to both young and old people and that's extremely difficult that's a that's a sort of double consciousness that requires such fine attention to detail and absolutely uh, these people um, are not necessarily capable of that without significant help and even with that help um, probably will are, are, are white people right now are smoking bad dope yeah so there's no incentive. <laughs> There's no incentive to make good dope. You know, like if you are, this is this is sort of like 50 Cent. Me and my friend used to talk about 50. It was like, yo, 50's mixtapes in New York were the greatest thing at the time. People loved them. They were excited for them. The album came out and then the next album came out was even worse. I wasn't disappointed. I said, listen, you're talking about a former dope dealer. He saw the market. If the market says they'll take, you know, bacon soda, you sell them bacon soda yeah. and soap. Right. And so the market right now is, is saying, hey, like what we're looking for is someone who makes us feel good. We're looking for someone who flatters our sensibilities. We're looking for something to hold in an Instagram post. We're looking for a ticket to a reading to post on social media to show we went and to validate our values. We're not trying to be challenged necessarily. And and at the end of the day, as you said, with some of the numbers of these shows and some of uh, some of the book sales, you know, white people 
maybe performing this um, allyship online, but I don't think they're actually buying the stuff and, and, and showing up to watch the product. And so if you know that, even if you are talented, they've de-incentivized uh, really putting your best foot forward. What's the point of it? You know, and that sort of cynicism that that pervades um, literature right now, you can understand to an extent. It's awful, but you can understand it. I also think there are a small tribe of white people concentrated in like coastal cities and stuff, because even though they're white and there's more white people in America than black people by far, um, the type of people who write for Vox, for Slate, for all these places, they're not as big as you know, you might think in terms of their cultural influence, if you look at a lot of the things that they like and promote and review disproportionately, like, you know, things like Mad Men, things like Girls on HBO or whatever, they will never come close to the numbers of, say, uh, Two and a Half Men or CSI or something. So I think that's another thing that um, to take into account. I think even if uh, 20% of these types of white people who are in charge of publishing houses or who work at HBO or Prestige TV, uh, even if 20% of the audience watches it, that's not a huge amount. And a lot of Black people aren't watching this either. Like, like even far less Black people are watching it. So I think that's the other problem. A lot of them aren't watching it. But even if a bunch of them do watch it, because these things have no populist appeal, that audience isn't uh, enough. That's why I think these people only aim to be on... HBO or or Amazon Prime or Netflix or places like streaming mm-hmm. sites where they don't have to deliver a populist product. Like they, they, it's not even like they settle for that. You'll never see them trying to break into CBS or NBC or something sure. where you're going to have to get eyeballs and appeal to sure. people. Sure. Well, well, you know, you're right. Um, you look at you look at Netflix and Amazon. I mean, the word among content creators, as they call them, the word among writers um, was, hey, it's time to get in on, on pitching shows, you know, last last five to 10 years, because there is a demand for content, not a content, pro- not quality, because the shows could be dropped after two seasons, regardless of whether or not they're critical darlings, you know, or there's quality there. They've done the research and viewership won't increase after those two, three seasons, right? But They'll give you an initial deal because they'll throw anything at the wall right now to see what sticks. And everyone knows that. And everyone knows that these these services are operating. Uh, Netflix at one point, they were operating with, uh, you know, on debt, right? You know, investment, speculation, debt, sort of like Uber um, and, and Lyft, which is like you try to flood the market. You go deep into debt. You have a lot of investors and you hope that when the dust clears, you've driven everyone else out. And you're the only game in town. Um, and so, yeah, there's this this sort of glut of content um, because people are throwing money, and it might not be huge money. In some cases, it is, but it's some money, and you you hope that it pops. Um, and at the very least, you add that to your resume that you wrote a show. And That's part very of that model, what mainstream TV delivers and demands. Yeah, and part of that model. It's like it's like the tech company model, the dot com model uh, of we're going to expect to lose money. It's fine because someday, you know, in scare quotes, um, you're going to make the money back, you know, and that's kind of what we were talking about, um, what you just said about, OK, they're running everything like a tech company now where basically there's a lot of companies now where 
you're able to get by and be seen successful without having to make money in a traditional profit and earnings sense. The story, whether it's uh, viable or not, is that sooner or later, the money's going to come in the back end. And that was one thing that we had trouble figuring out, like, where is the money sure. going to come in the back end of of all of this in, in um, publishing or whatever? You know, and, and the point that I made when we spoke was um, we focus on this this class of Negro grifters uh, because it's of particular interest to us personally, right? And also we're, we're watching this faux renaissance and we, we see that there's a cliquishness, there's an Amway Ponzi scheme sort of um, structure to it. People promote each other. They deflect criticism from their allies, and they all hope to uh, get a taste from the punch bowl, and they band together in the quest for that. But um, what we talked about was the fact that I had been trying to figure this out before this faux Negro renaissance. Um, Being a writer, having seen my peers at the best MFA program in the country get six-figure book deals, and I'd been in classrooms with them, and I found their work unreadable. And I was thinking... Okay, so to whom does this appeal and who's making these decisions? And when you sink 200 to 500 grand into a book and then I watch it and three years later, I realize no one bought that damn book. It didn't get turned into a movie and it didn't win a prize. How do you recoup the losses? Um, Part of what I understand now is that, like you said, this is a small group of people. When you talk about um, Vox and I'm not I don't know anything about Vox Media, but I'm just saying what you talked about Vox and and whatever these other news sites and these prestige television networks, they're generally populated by credentialized um, children of the elite, right? Ivy League degrees, elite liberal arts universities, um, people who boost their friends. And I think that what we're seeing, you know, with this sort of like the the black excellence industrial complex um, is really not original. It's simply a replication of elite credentialed white um, people and what they've been doing for years in the industries of television and publishing, regardless of the sales, regardless of the ratings, they get their friends rich and then they wait for the bubble to pop um, and other people suffer. And so in that way, it's, it's very Amway-esque, right? It's very mm-hmm. Mary Kay and all of that stuff. You get enough people in and you make sure you're at the top of the pyramid and you cash out before it pops. And that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like crypto. It's like anything. I mean, when I was saying we're in a bubble full of bubbles, this is going on everywhere where you have Dogecoin, you have Bitcoin, you have the stock market stuff where the idea is a lot of people, like people always think, oh my God, everybody's so stupid when it comes to this crypto. What kind of morons are doing this? But it's FOMO. It's fear of missing out. Uh, these people are not as dumb as you think. I, I know some people who are in investment banking or are in uh, financial planning and their banks like Wells Fargo or City are going to start getting into crypto. And, you know, say what you will, but uh, you might think the regular Joe on game on uh, Robin Hood is dumb or on, uh, you know, the crypto app. But these big guys are getting in too. And I said, don't you guys think this is a bubble? And my friend said, yeah, everyone at my bank knows this is a bubble, but if the music's playing, you got to dance. And what, what what he was trying to sure. say is you can't have all this money being made is the bank's philosophy and you just sit it out. You know what I mean? Uh, you have to play play the game. So what, what they're confident of is the same thing the regular Joe is confident of. They know it's a bubble. 
They know it's a Ponzi scheme, but they figure out uh, they can get in. They're counting on a bunch of people getting in after them and driving the price up. And they're banking on being able to uh, take the money and run, get out before it all uh, crashes. So, sure, yeah, I mean, I, they're think not dumb. I think it's the same thing as what you're describing. They're, they're not yeah, dumb. They're yeah. cynical. That's a very different, this... different sort of thing. Yeah. Cynicism is very mm-hmm. different from stupidity. Yep. And I think a lot of that's happening with uh, the people that we're talking about, too, on all levels. Like, they realize it's... I mean, because that's how um, Primerica, Amway, any of those things work, is to some degree, you know it's kind of a scam or a bubble um, most of the time, but you're just hoping you can find a bigger sucker after you. And then you're hoping sure. that the sucker you find can find a bigger sucker and that of course you're the top sucker in a pyramid of suckers of course this is a hundred percent and if it works 100%. are you really a sucker at, at all a hundred percent you have to suspend a, a a basic sense of community decency and humanity to do this it doesn't mean you're an idiot um but it it verges on sociopathy <laughs> you know it's like and and this is what i think troubles me because i know some of the people Personally, I've, I, I know some people who are cashing in on this. Yeah. Um, and I know that they're not stupid enough to believe in what they're pitching, but they're cynical enough to have decided at some point that they're going to get theirs. It, it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, and I, I apologize if I misquote it. It's a Kanye West uh, line, and I don't know anything about his catalog. And from the moment he was introduced to the public, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, and I just think he's one of the most dreadful humans and just a terrible <laughs> artist. I couldn't believe how bad the music was the entire time that people were celebrating it. But I think he said something like, "What you think I rap for to drive a fucking Rav for?" You know, and this is this this sort of you can see that this hip hop. Um, this this hip hop ethos uh, that kind of was ushered in by uh, Diddy and Jay Z, which is like I'm not a rapper, I'm a hustler who happens to know how to rap. That the capitalism I'm not trumps a business all, man. right? I'm a business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know that that, that 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 I'm a hustler that knows how to rap. You know, and it, it when it, it it's transcended things uh, for black people. It's 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 literary now. Um, in academia, too. I mean, there are people who perform. They're like, you know, I, I happen to have a PhD, but I'm a hustler with a PhD. Uh, these are really cynical people who are about the bottom line. They're not about the integrity of the field or the genre or the work. The question is, how do I maximize uh, my earning potential? And um, and that's that's not, for me, that's not what art is about. That's not what um, critical analysis is about. It's not what um, uh, social movements are about. And of course, that makes me a fool in the capitalistic sense. In the human sense, I think it makes me true to my principles. <laughs> you know, but yeah. that, this is not a time for that right now. That is for, for for certain. I've observed that. You know, so it's not a time for that. Uh, you were taking a drink, so I don't know if you were pausing or if you were done with what you were saying. Oh no, I'm done. I'm done. done. Okay, hey, it's your show, man. Yeah. You interrupt me at any damn time. Oh right? no, people, com- people complain. <laughs> I gotta hear about it all the time whenever I interrupt someone. They're like, you know, why are you interrupting the guests? You know, so. Uh, Listen, man, if you come to my house and I'm playing music, you can change the music if I let you. Okay, so similarly, if I'm on your show and you want to play your tune, I'm going to wait until it's over. The this is what I was thinking about. Right. Is it possible for people who is it possible for people who are uh, motivated by less cynical means to use the tactics that 
these kind of people do for good. Like my gut is no, but I can't tell you why it's just my gut. But I'll I'll give you an example of what I mean by these people's means. Like I can't say these people are devoid of skill because they do have a skill even if it's not in the actual craft. They might lack it in the craft because they lack talent or they might lack it in the craft because they're lazy or they might lack it in the craft because they're required to spam too much so they don't have the time to produce good craft. But what they're good at is constantly signal boosting each other. They're good Mm -hmm. at making connections. They're good at finding out who it is they need to impress and or getting good with and whatever. I always kind of use a term that like a mediocrity mafia. Like, you know, the mafia has like a omerta called a silence. You never speak against the family. You know, Cosa Nostra, they're like that. They will never give each other a bad review. They will always bring, if one of them gets in somewhere, they will always bring the other ones in. Like the movie Parasite wasn't about the mob, but it was about a family doing crime. And if you ever saw the movie Parasite, one course, person yeah. got into the home and the first thing they did is, how can I get my sister into the home? Then they mm-hmm. got the father into the home and they were lying about credentials. They were doing stuff. And by the time they were done, the whole family was working for this other family. And I feel like, uh, you know, they're good at they're good at that. And I think getting good at that is what keeps them from making great craft because that's time consuming. That's that's, you know, you've sent me like tweets or Facebook posts or whatever, and they're all in each other's plies cheerleading each other on it's a mutual admiration sure. society and whatever sure. and i was thinking like can they're, they're, yeah they're good at seeing the bottom line at all times and i don't know it, it, here's the thing that's not necessarily a talent and and i never want to mistake shamelessness for pride you know what i mean yeah so like so so you see you and i walking down the street and we see a drug addled person stumbling we see a human tragedy that person sees either a potential sale or a potential victim. They see holes that can be exploited. And the other thing that they do well is what people sometimes accuse the Republican Party of doing, sometimes with admiration, other times with contempt, which is staying on message. They always stay on message, always. And I've seen it to an extent that's harrowing. I've seen people I know on Twitter. Um, I saw. I think in one case it haunts me. I saw a woman who's an author who I know, who I went to, uh, with whom I went to college. Uh, she says uh, she she made a tweet about, um, let's say, I think it was um, Kamala Harris, and this other famous black writer wrote a tweet that absolutely undermined and contradicted her tweet. And her reaction was to quote treat quote tweet him and say thank you, which is to say even even as it cost her her own dignity and her own point. Mm. She stayed on message. And what what I was telling friends of mine who they were defending her, and, 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 and I said, listen, if she's willing to sacrifice her own personal integrity, what regard do you think she has for yours? If she's willing to sacrifice her own dignity in service yeah. to the bottom line, instead of, then what regard do you think she has for your dignity or the dignity of the collective as she presents herself in radical language? Do you think she could possibly be connected to a larger movement? And this is what we're seeing. To an extent, you're right. 
It's a skill to produce content constantly, to network. It takes effort. It, it, in, in that sense, they are achieving. They're doing something. Um, but in the most basic sense, I think a lot of us could do it, but then we'd have to go to sleep at night and we'd have to sit with ourselves. And we might have serious issues with that, right? I think that back in the day, we called this selling out. This is an, <laughs> the most confusing yeah. concept, right? Yeah. It's called compromising the self, right? So, Yeah. Like, I was thinking, what if you get, like, 10 or 12 people that you like and then just... But you know what? I couldn't tweet like that. Like, I couldn't just be like, um, yup, yup. And just, like, I don't know. There's a way that they always are in each other's mentions and retweets that is so kind of childish to me. Like, this, um, like, like, like when you sent that um, Facebook wall post i think it was like um kaisi leman and he was giving this bizarrely unhinged rant about how academia couldn't mess with him because he talks so so niggerish but it's because he keeps it too real and then all these other people like roxanne gay and all these people were like you know preach preach or someone was tweeting about black abundance i think it was saeed jones and he's like i remember kaisi Lemon was talking about something and he, and he added him and it was just for uh-huh. no reason except to remind people sure. that Kaisi Lemon exists and then he's sure. a black abundance that's what I'm trying sloganeering. to do the abundance a lot of sloganeering sure yeah, sloganeering and whatever and it's like I would just feel kind of weird to be tweeting like that all the time like a constant uh, per, uh, it's like a parade of you and your friends going around the block and then you're taking turns being in the parade and covering the parade and then it's like, okay, you do one loop around the block. Then you switch. Okay, you get on the float. And I'm going to go on the side and report on the float. And you go around the block once. And it's just... It's utterly shocking. And I think that the fact that no one can articulate this is disheartening. I should say that, you know, I, I mean, there's no reason that your audience would know this or believe this. But I think, you know, you know this and you believe this uh, from our interactions. I know a lot of people uh, in academic and in writing circles and even some uh, more famous sort of public intellectual spokespeople. You would be shocked how many people send these things to me. They text me, they email me, DM me, PM, whatever these things are. Right. Um, But no one wants to say it out loud. They know that this is insane. They're watching it. Um, and they know it's crazy, and they're not sure what to do. Social media has normalized and valorized narcissism, uh, cronyism, um, to an extent that we we haven't seen uh, publicly. You know, it's 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 sort of like uh, nullified the idea of an ultimate gatekeeper who can say, "All right, that's enough." Like there is no "that's enough" anymore. And so watching it is really strange because sometimes I'm like, "Hey, wasn't that an incoherent narcissistic rant?" And shouldn't anyone with sense shun or walk away from that? And it's quite the opposite. You could be quiet. You could just ignore it. But they people actually promote and attach themselves to these things. And so that idea, the post you're talking about, I don't know Kiese. Um, I, I don't have anything against him personally. Um, I'm, I'm mostly unfamiliar with him as a person. We have mutual acquaintances. But I saw a few things he posted. And I thought, this seems like a person who might need help um, based on these these posts. And on the face of it, some of these things are absurd. The ideal, the idea that he put forth in one of those posts was that he got into a business where there's the fewest uh, number of real niggas, I believe he said, uh, you know, anywhere per capita. He's talking about academia. Yeah. My experience in academia is that 
actually it has the highest percentage of whatever he would deem real niggas yeah. because these are people who are principled to the point of madness. And that's what someone sent me. They said, I thought, actually, this is a very famous person sent me that screenshot and said, I thought actually the people I knew in academia were actually some of the realists. I mean, they don't get paid a lot of money. Um, they're dedicated to their craft. They, they believe in radical politics and really fascinating interrogations of, of, of whatever passes as the norm. And somehow he's identified those people uh, as phonies and he and Roxanne Gay and whomever else are actually radicals. And this is something that I think we talked about, which is that I, I did a talk at Penn State recently, um, and the talk was called The Script Will Not Save Us. What's happened is we've taken, or a lot of people have taken radical talking points and applied them to basic sort of consumerist, narcissistic realities. Um, and they've radicalized basic consumerism in mainstream politics and language. And they've radicalized establishmentarianism. So you have these people who are assigned to um, the biggest agencies in the country, represented by white agents, agencies that didn't have any uh, agents of color until recently, one of which was just had one and who was an Asian, um, and you know who write for publications like New York Magazine and New York Times, not particularly progressive um, in terms of their hiring practices, who are telling you that, in fact, that they are like Malcolm X, that they're the realest nigga in the game and everyone's after them and they can't find any peers. And so the reality is out of step with the rhetoric. And I keep thinking, when the disconnect is that wide, how does no one see it but me? And I know people see it, but they're terrified to articulate it lest they be shunned on social media by this club. You want to know what's like funny about that? What you said is, uh, I have people go in my DMs who will be like blue checks or academics or like mm -hmm. well-known writers. And they'll be like, you know, I'm so glad you said that, you know, or they'll be agreeing and they'll start correspondences with me, but they won't follow me on Twitter <laughs> because yep. I think they want to be seen uh, following me. Nope. So they nope. won't follow me. And same thing. I start yep. realizing, okay, this person reads like, maybe they have a shadow account that they're um, using like to follow me, sure. but they'll like, right. They'll be like, you know, but you didn't hear it from me. And they'll be like, sharing stuff with me and it's kind of funny i kind of understand why they do it but it makes you realize like a lot of things you think aren't crazy you know like these people see it even within these circles there's a lot of people who are in these circles who kind of have to just like swallow it and they're the ones who seem to be going craziest from it you know what i mean um uh, from being from being around it and something that you kind of um uh, hinted at earlier about how we kind of talk about the black side of the game because that's the one that we're uh we feel most connected to but i mean this is basically this whole kind of bubble is with white writers and and everything whether it's like white influencers making cookbooks or whatever it's not it's not unique to um you know the the black side of the game but it is particularly extra obnoxious with the black side of the game because they have to tie it in with so much, so many regressive ideas of blackness and full activism and bad code switching and and all this stuff, you know, like if someone makes a Thug Kitchen cookbook or whatever, you know, it's, I can't believe you just brought that up. Yeah, it's tacky. I can't believe you just brought that up, bro. <laughs> no, I don't even know what that is. And my man just hit me about the Thug Where? Kitchen cookbook because he said his his girl came over to his crib with a Thug Kitchen cookbook and it upset him and he wasn't sure how to confront her about it. Oh. And I said. 
I said, I don't know what it's about. And he said, it's some vegan bullshit. And he, and he, and he was texting me some of the, you know, ways they described the recipes. And he was like, these people got to be white. Right. Yep. And I don't know anything about it. And you just brought it back into my life and it kills me. Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's tacky. It's, but in this thing, I say this about Tuck, Tuck Kitchen. I believe it actually sells. Uh, say what you will. Of course it sells. Yeah. It actually sells. It's not like this other, uh, I call a lot of, of these other projects sells. make work. This actually, I think, sells, but it's uh, it's tacky, it's uh, racist, but it's not pretending to be this kind of activism. If anything, it's been called out pretty, pretty constantly. But these people, I think, it's the level to which uh, they sniff their own farts that drives me nuts. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, sure. And, and, and here's the thing, you know, like I've been this way my whole life, um, and I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. Sometimes I think it's because I have a, a particularly strong moral compass and I have a particularly strong brand of integrity. Other times I think it's because I grew up the way I grew up, which is to say I didn't rely on anyone, so I owed no one anything, right? I used to help support my mom at one point. You know, like I came from a welfare hotel. I was homeless. Um, you know, like I didn't, no one was going to give me an inheritance. So maybe it's not just that I'm a good person. It's just that I don't know that sort of attachment where I rely on someone for something. But I don't know how to call something good. I mean, something trash good. So I think about my cousin who I love. His, his birthday just passed. I love him to death. Uh, which is uh, no pun intended. He passed when we were both like 25. He got shot and killed. I love him. He was like a brother to me. We used to live together at times. Um, And he was a rapper. I thought his raps were trash. My family still pretends that he was about to blow and bring the record deal to the hood and shit. I don't know how to pretend. To his face, I would listen to his music, but I would never be like, hey, yo, damn, yo, your shit is John Blaze. I would just look and I'd be like, wow, this shit is awkward, man, because this shit's (laughs) not nice like that. Because if you love somebody, you don't tell them those lies. And that's what I think about with this crowd is that they don't even like each other. They're constantly boosting each other. But if you read some of this product... And you say, and you retweet, and you say, because you always have the option of being silent. And they, they they will always promote them. And I'm like, bro, there's no way if you read written language and you appreciate it that you think this is good. But do they have the tools to even know? Because it's not like they're producing great stuff themselves and then saying that trash is good. I mean, the person who's calling this trash great, when it's their turn, is making trash too. And that person sure. is praising them. So it's like, maybe they sure. just can't, they don't have the, the, the You know the what? Tools. You'd be surprised. Many, many of them do. Now, and I think there are two different things we're talking about too, right? We're talking about people who have artistic sense. And then we're talking about people who have uh, experiential sense. So for instance, the thing about uh, people calling each other real niggas and black and in black and black as fuck. There are people who have a certain background, but they know that's not true. But then in terms of education and talent, there are people who understand good work from bad. And those people are also on board. I mean, you're talking about people with intellectual integrity and credibility who work at Ivy League institutions, who have done economic analysis, um, socialist scholarship, who I also find in those mentions, uh, co-signing, saying, yeah, we got to get up soon. you know, preach and all that sort of stuff. And so what you find is there's sort of junior high school lunchroom uh, replication in terms of the dynamic, right? The social dynamic. But I think people are afraid to be left out. And I also think if we're going to be honest about social media, there are a lot of people who never figured out in high school um, that the cool kids weren't cool. They want their turn being cool. They didn't have friends in real life. They weren't popular and they finally know what it feels like. And I don't think they want to let that go. Whatever the cost may be. They found a lunch table 
they found a cool kids lunch table they could finally um, sit at and even be the head of, I guess. Oh, sure. That's a real thing. I see it regularly. But it's like if you write something that I like, like, for example, when um, when I first came across that article you wrote about Jessica Krug, I like the article you wrote about Jessica Krug. And I retweeted the article you wrote about Jessica Krug. And I think you've done some other stuff that I've uh, retweeted. But I'll never just sit around my house, you know, on a Tuesday for no reason and say, was just thinking about what at Jason England said, quote, uh, niggas is crazy. That's deep. You know, sure, 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 like, sure. it would not sure, even be real sure. appreciation of you. It would just be just so fake and just weirdly corny. Like, like if you saw someone doing that with their friends, you like, like y'all just corny. Like I wouldn't even want to embarrass myself or you with that, but sure, sure. to a degree, it looks like it works. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it does. So, so, yeah. so, so let me say something real quick about that. Yeah. And, uh, hey, and you know, I don't know if you prefer to be called Trevor or T. Uh, oh, you can call me, call me T. It's fine. All right. So um, when I was in the, in the MFA program in Iowa, um, I, I had the privilege of studying under James Allen McPherson, first black uh, writer to ever win a Pulitzer for fiction, uh, for his short fiction, his, uh, one of his short story collections. Uh, he passed maybe seven years ago. Uh, Jim was incredible, incredible person. I'll never forget this moment. We're in a workshop and a student asked him, what have you been working on? What's your project? And he said, how dare you ask me that? What are you working on? And she stammered and he said, it's the worst question you can ask a writer, because if you could describe what you were working on in a quick synopsis, the shit's trash, <laughs> right? Because because good work is complex and layered, right? And you shouldn't be able to explain it because it's going in a lot of different directions and every reader might have a different answer for that. Similarly, what you're saying is you could never say, hey, I read that shit from Jay. I was sitting around thinking crazy nigga because crazy nigga is not in my piece because <laughs> I don't know how to write a soundbite piece because I'm actually interrogating uh, a concept, right? And so that's when, when I see these things where they're like black abundance, black excellence, black underdog, understand, overstand. Nigga, I'm not listening to a rap record. I'm yeah. looking for intellectuals and social thinkers to write uh, a, a, about um, an issue that's pertinent to us right now, temporarily, right? And you're giving me a slogan that anyone could repeat that means nothing. You're like an astrologer or fortune cookie at that point. So if you put forth that you were sitting around thinking about something uh, that means anything anyone wants it to me, then you're speaking the language of a con man. Well, and there's nothing in anything I write that could ever be like that because that's not the aim. But but these people aren't even talking about quotes from the writing. Like, because at least that's talking about the writing. What I'm talking about is these people will say, I was in conversation with dude and he mentioned this in passing to me and it was so deep. I was just thinking about it. So the whole like black abundance thing, if I remember correctly, he was saying that, uh, I think he was saying, I don't want to track down the tree again, but I think he was saying that Kaise said that to him like in passing and he just dropped like a jewel on him or something sure. that was, which was even crazier because like you said, it's just an empty phrase. I don't, I don't think, I don't, I, I actually don't think you're right here. Oh, really? I actually think it's a phrase he wrote. Um, it's even worse because it was so vapid. I assumed it was. Well, hold on. I think it's not just a phrase he wrote, but I think it was repeated in a recent piece oh. he wrote that someone sent me. And I'm going to say this. I, th I think at this point, 
You know this from our interactions. Yeah. Um, I just don't care about this sort of stuff. But I also never want to step out of bounds and mention a person without uh, reason to do so. Yeah. Um, so I've been no malice for, for these people. I don't even know them. And I'm, I'm mostly unfamiliar with their work. I'm sort of in an isolated bubble. I'm reading old short fiction that I teach, old novels. Um, I'm not familiar with all these people's work. But I do get some of this sent to me by peers. Um, sometimes close friends of these people will send me this shit like, look what this nigga is up to. It's very, it's crazy. Like yeah. it's a scene I couldn't be a part of for that reason as well. But someone sent me a piece that this guy recently wrote, um, which was, let me think about where it was, maybe New York Magazine and it was something about black death. But the phrase black abundance popped up there and I oh. noticed it because it had been mentioned and, and the thing that maybe you sent me. And I said, okay, I see there's a recurrence of this, which is to say that it is a thing that I think was in print, but there's a whole lot of stuff like that. I mean, that's the point, right? When we boil these things down to uh, social media presence, retweetability, and what is easily digestible as a slogan by white people and, and maybe bougie black people so they can repeat and promote it. It's almost like a commercial jingo, right? You have to have something that means everything and nothing at once um, that has the widest appeal. And so maybe black abundance was that sort of thing. I don't know what the fuck black abundance means personally. It could mean anything and nothing at the same time. And that kind of shit doesn't appeal to me. And I think also makes it uh, great because I think at the end of the day, it's meant to be a branding exercise. And I think the best type of uh, con man branding is when you're able to not even have to make a new product. You just kind of breathe new life and new demand into something by just re-releasing it under a different name. So like, to me, it's like, how is Black Excellence different than when they came out with Black Abundance to when they've now come up with what I think is like the third uh, 3.0 release, which is uh, Black Renaissance. And each time they give it a new name, I look and it's like, okay, this is just the same stuff with a new with a new coat of paint. Like, you know, so sure. so now that, now I've seen two sure. or three articles about the Black Renaissance and it's, and it's just still the same group of people. You know, it's, it's not really, really different, but it gives a chance to just uh -huh. breathe some new life and some fake excitement into. I mean, what's interesting is the alt-right used to do this a lot, too. They, they were at one point the red pill, then they were a neo-reaction, then they were the dark enlightenment into like alt-right intellectual dark web. And it's like, OK, it's the same dumb shit. It's just a bunch of MRAs, pickup artists, race scientists mm -hmm. and evolutionary psych psychologists, mm -hmm. but they get a fresh new cycle each time they rebrand. Sure, sure. It's it, Well, the Black Renaissance is, is interesting, um, right? It's, it's as, a, as a much more famous person than I am said to me via text, uh, how come it's the same five niggas every time? <laughs> so, so the question is like, in terms of a Black Renaissance or uh, Black excellence or even Black abundance, um, the question is why there seems to be a disconnect from viewing uh, progress uh, as collective rather than individual. Because I keep trying to see, I, I, I'm looking at everything, right? We're in the COVID era, we're in economic downturn, we're in a new Gilded Age, and I see no progress for my family. I see no progress for Black people in general. And I keep seeing the same dozen people telling me that, in fact, we're in the midst of a goddamn windfall. We actually are in the midst of an artistic and social renaissance. And I can't see the effects of it or the benefits of it anywhere except among those 12 people 
who continue to get speaking fees and book deals about the Black Renaissance. I can't live with that sort of cognitive dissonance personally and promote it and pretend that the emperor has clothes. But somehow, you know, we're supposed to believe this. But, you know, that reminds me of, you know, one thing that we kept talking about when we were talking was how um, when we were talking, we were talking about how all these things have like parallels everywhere because we're in this kind of bubble society where everywhere you look, there's a different bubble. And uh, even with the economy and the stock market, uh, there's a friend of mine saw a house that he was interested in and he uh, went to the bank the day after he saw the listing, like like it came out. And they were like, yeah, sorry, this uh, house was just uh, paid for all in cash. Someone showed up to the person and bought the house from them all in cash. And he said, this is like the seventh time this has happened to me, uh, you know, in the area I live. Like, like we have the jobs. We have me and my wife. We have the good credit. Mm-hmm. We have everything. But the houses won't even stay long enough. And, and, and uh, he was like, how is this the middle of a pandemic? And I was like, we're in the craziest time because we're in a bubble and we're in a recession at the same time. But because the bubble is happening to the right people, um, no one feels any urgency about it. You know, uh, the politicians don't have to care. Uh, you know, like for the people who are doing well, they've been doing better than ever in the in the uh, pandemic. You know, uh, the right a handful of companies are keeping the whole stock market afloat and hitting new record highs, you know, like, and, and all this stuff. And I think that dynamic, you know, that chasm between people doing well and people doing bad and the people doing well, even though they're a small amount doing well enough to eclipse how bad everyone else is doing. I think there's a creative version of that uh, happening, happening as well, because in a certain way, I feel like it's almost the best time ever to be one of these so-called multi-hyphenates and not just the black ones like like all of them i'm seeing deal after deal and deadline of some like white lady who's like still in the mfa uh who hasn't even graduated the mfa and her book is um set to be published already and it's already been optioned for a movie Sure. You know, and it's like, sure. how many deals in a row can happen like this? Sure, sure. Well, well, you know, here's the other thing you got to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of this, some of this stuff is unclear to the public. Uh, hold on, hold on. I want to add one last thing for you before you answer. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. do your thing. I want to add one last thing. But for a lot of artists in general, for like 80% of artists, a lot of them complain it's like the worst time to be an artist, you know? And I just want to add that difference in what the majority of people are feeling versus what these handful... Like, it's not a great time for all artists, but if you're in the chosen group, it's the best time ever. Sure. Yeah. Well, don't get it confused with, with option and move. Like, a lot of people get their shit option. It doesn't mean it'll ever get made. Hmm. It also means that you might have been paid a fee that was small or your agent was, and that if it ever gets made, you'll get a larger fee, which still won't be, a, 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 you know, much of the earnings of an actual movie. My ex-girlfriend had her book option. This shit ain't come out. It probably never will. She hasn't seen anything off it. So like a lot of this is like NFL contracts where it's like they announced that this dude just set the record. He made 200 million on that deal. And you look at the fine print and 18 million is guaranteed mm. <laughs> and they can cut him at any time. Mm. So like so, so some of that is like about generating hype. Can I ask, right? you, a, can I ask you a question? What about when they have a person um, tied to it? Does that make a difference or is it still just part of the same? Well, what does that mean? Well, like, you know, um, so-and-so is going to be um, producing a script on it 
or or whatever. Well, well, then it's mutually beneficial, right? You know, that, that's a way to get hype for both parties. Got it. Um, until it comes to fruition, I would never believe anything about money in those deals. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. I think you have to. You got to take that with a, a, a huge grain of salt, man. You know, like the, the business is tweeting out the numbers to generate hype, uh, but but a lot of people aren't seeing the money that way. It's just not. That's not the case. From my experience and from from what I know intimately with with people who have these deals, that yeah. makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it makes a lot of sense because uh, yeah, they're announcing these deals like like crazy, and I was really um, wondering. And the, but the other thing is, I never remember to keep a running list of you know which deals are getting uh, actually brought to completion. You know, it's just I just did notice just a lot of like crazy deals, really early optioning happening and people the book isn't even out yet so they don't even know sure. how the book is even going to sell but they're already yeah. announcing like Lionsgate's optioned it for a movie but what you said makes sense they might just be figuring we'll pay a bunch of fees scattershot just to lock things into place and if it ends up looking like a good idea to adapt you know we can adapt it if not we just uh write off the money we lost or whatever i don't know sure well here's the other thing i, I think that what's interesting is what you just said you said um a lot of people are saying it couldn't be a worse time to be an artist, similar to the housing market. And you're right. Um, one of my college friends, she was my roommate at one point, one year, we had a three-person apartment. She's a doctor. She came from some money and she's the doctor. She's doing fine. And she lives in Idaho. All right. Most people are like, shit, ain't nobody in Idaho and I don't want to go there. Idaho's housing market has been destroyed. It's been hyperinflated by Silicon Valley employees who can't afford to be in Northern uh, California anymore, who are buying homes there now that they can telecommute or whatever you call it, um, or who are buying second homes there, right? So suddenly, where there was affordable, nice housing for, let's say, 100 grand for a house if you were a doctor. 600 grand now to live in fucking Idaho, dog? Mm -hmm. To live in Idaho, right? So it's never been a better time for the people who have, as you said, and never been on a, a worse time for the people who either don't have or kind of used to have. Yep, exactly. Like, this isn't a broke person, right? So what you're saying is interesting to me for this reason. And I think about it. And I talked to some of my black friends who are on the level and won't go on the record, but they contemplate this. There are a lot of people who are not credentialed. And that's the other interesting thing. It almost looks meritocratic in a way that is unprecedented because there's a lot of writers getting paid. And you're like, who the fuck is that? It's like, where did that person come from? Yep. Nobody heard of him. Uh, nobody heard of her. Uh, I read that piece. It didn't seem good. This motherfucker is making $800,000 off a deal. It's never been a better time for that person. But it deregulates the entire market for everyone else. Yeah. And so what I think about is the backlash that's inevitable. There are a whole lot of white people right now. God bless these privileged white people who for once in their life, are finding they can't win a damn award. Yep. They can't get certain kinds of book deals that they, they saw their peers get. Can't get a second they look. can't get certain kind of press. Yes, or a second look. I'll tell you something that I happen to know about America. They'll be back. And when they come back and it's their time again, the black writers of talent are going to face a backlash. And the black editors and the black uh, heads of publishing companies are going to face such a strong backlash. And I worry about that because there are a whole bunch of people grifting right now openly and everyone's tolerating it and they're pretending they're OK with it because they don't want to get blackballed. But man, there's some bitter ass white people right now and I don't have sympathy for them. Let that be clear. Yeah. Fuck them. But I do know what they will do 
once this goes away, and let's not pretend we don't know about history, it always goes away. And so this bubble, as you say, when it pops, I'm worried about serious Black artistry. I'm worried about serious Black social intellectual thought and how little room there will be for it. Because as a friend said to me, there are a whole lot of people being put in positions of power right now and set up to give big book deals to people who won't recoup because when it blows back on them, those publishing houses can say, we gave you your shot for five fucking years. Y'all are done. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.